Your website is the front door of your business, but the way teams build and optimize is broken. Stuck between inflexible templates and cumbersome codependent solutions, there's a better, faster way. Enter Webflow, a visual-first platform that empowers you to create freely. Now you can ship web pages in weeks instead of months and save millions in development costs. These are the real results for companies like Orange Theory, Dropbox, and IDEO. Get started today at webflow.com. Webflow, more than a website builder. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. Today I'm talking with Marissa Thalberg, who is the Global Chief Brand Officer of Taco Bell. Marissa, hi and welcome to the show. Hello, and thanks for having me, Nadine. Thank you for joining me. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about this role with Taco Bell. So I'm happy to talk about that, and it's really astounding. I had a friend come visit me from my previous life in New York, which is where I lived basically my whole life other than than college, and she was like, gosh, it's just been two years now. I said, no, it's been almost four years, so it's amazing how time flies when you make a big change and and uh, all sorts of good things come with it. So for me, it was just a a very interesting opportunity that came at the right time, both in my career and my life. I think particularly as women, although I'd like to say as people, we have to be holistic thinkers and consider not just our own individual needs, but how it affects our family, you know, all the different factors that go into the calculus, I like to say, of decision-making. And I was in luxury beauty leading from a a corporate standpoint, consumer engagement, digital and social marketing across that portfolio of brands. And then Taco Bell called. And there was something about the brand that caught my imagination. And the more we got to know each other, we just both felt it was the right personal mutual bet to take on each other. And of course, the bigger decision was relocating our whole family from New York to California. But it has been a a really an incredible journey. Wow. Okay. So you mentioned a whole bunch of things in there that I am definitely coming back to. Uh, (laughs) Everything around the women traits of being holistic thinkers. And we were just talking about the fact that I've now had three women global chief brand officers on CMO moves. And the fact that you went from luxury goods, luxury beauty to be exact. Yes. Tacos. Yes. Yep. And then what it was like being a mom and relocating your family. So those are three things we're going to talk about for sure. And so much Great. more. So before we dive into how you went from luxury beauty to tacos, let's talk about something else that you've worked on alongside of your incredible first career, your second career. Mm-hmm. with executive moms. Tell me what yeah. that's about. Yeah, thanks for asking about that because it really does seem and it was 
lifetimes ago that I founded Executive Moms all the way back in 2002, which if you consider was before social media even. You just think about the fact that in some ways it wasn't that long ago, but in other ways the world has changed so, so much. And I became a mom for the first time myself in, in late 2000. I was in New York City and very hungry to forge a sense of connection with other women who had also become moms. And I went to what was at the time kind of the only real new mother's luncheon that existed, even in New York, which I always say is a bastion of work life. And yet there just wasn't a lot. And interestingly, and I'll never forget this, everyone went away went around the room and had to self-identify name, your baby's name, what street you lived on, and whether you were going back to work or not, which in and of itself is interesting. What was also kind of very curious to me is all these women were saying they weren't going back to work, which raised all sorts of financial questions to me <laughs> in terms of uh, how are you all doing this? And New York is not known to be an inexpensive place to live. But then secondly, I was like, well, don't you want to have your career when I go back to work? And as I went back to work and started to get my sea legs as a parent, but was really, really preoccupied with this idea of where am I going to find community and connection, a sense of ideas and, and sometimes maybe a sense of commiseration, all the, that full emotional gamut. And the more I asked, and at the time I was head of global advertising at Unilever Cosmetics and very connected into the, you know, the media world because of my job. And I was asking various publishers of parenting magazines, hey, what should I join? And across the board, the answer was, we don't know. There isn't anything. You should go start it. And that was the genesis of my founding of Executive Moms which became one of the first and really preeminent organizations to support what I had always described as fabulous women who are both mothers and professionals. And you can question the sanity of giving myself a second career to <laughs> try to figure out how to wrestle with the first one. But it became something that I really did out of love and, and desire to support other women and became a, a big part of my life for many, many years. Wow. Amazing that you took all that on. And when you and I were chatting about what it took to really create, launch, and run Executive Moms, I mean, yeah. truly, it was a second career. So tell me a little bit more about how you started Executive Moms and then how you managed it. Uh, I will tell you... Um, and I'm not embarrassed to say this, I was absolutely terrified at the prospect of starting something because you you start to feel like you're making a commitment into the world that you're fearful you won't be able to fulfill. That's at least how I felt. And I think I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, and yet I absolutely never really saw myself as having the, the qualities I think you'd need to be an entrepreneur, which is interesting. Uh, in fact, I think how that's manifested later in my career is just having this merging of an entrepreneurial spirit, but doing really well in large businesses and companies where you're surrounded by a team. And how do you bring both, which is just a whole other fun topic to talk about. But as it pertains to executive moms, it was really about putting one foot in front of the other. And I guess the things that I, I knew were my strengths, like I had an instant sense of what I wanted this brand to be. And, and even if you think about the name executive moms and rewind the clock, 17 years, oh my gosh, 17 years, you think about um, the, the one other sort of standard of, of, of communication for this audience was Working Mother Magazine. And that always just had a very, with, with due respect to, you know, how pioneering it was, it always had a very downtrodden sound to me. And what I liked is this interesting 
dichotomy of the word executive, which seems very serious and important, and the word mom, which is unabashedly warm and, and informal. And, and that to me was what I felt the women I was seeing were kind of, you know, were really embracing that dichotomy and wanted to wear it with pride as opposed to hiding one side or the other. And so right from the start, I think it was a very instinctive feeling about what was missing. The more that I got into doing executive moms, I realized that I wanted to understand this audience better. So started commissioning research and just fielding surveys and started finding all this really interesting facts that in my mind really debunked what I saw and sometimes still see as the negative mythology that exists in popular culture about working moms. I mean, think about TV shows, movies, when do you ever see a really fantastic working mom? It's, it's rare. And at least back then, maybe still today, it was sort of the proxy for the mom who doesn't have it together, the mom that doesn't show up for the big sale. And that was not the women I was seeing when we would throw a big executive mom's event. These women mostly had it all together, but at times they were feeling maybe isolated or just needed to feel a little wind under their wings or, or just, just the comfort of seeing you're not alone in taking this all on. And so it became very clear to me that that's what executive moms really needed to be about, was not to be pedantic and not to tell you how to live your life differently or better, but rather just to create content and community that would help already terrific women feel just that much more equipped to thrive. And in the process, maybe debunk some of these, I think, very dated or unfair stereotypes about who executive moms really are. Well, and that could be a whole nother podcast to, to talk about the myths and debunking them, right? I think there are a lot of women out there still who are executive moms that would benefit from this. So executive mom still is actually going on, but you are no longer part of the executive team there anymore. Is that right? No, it, it you know, and it's another interesting thing is when you are managing a full-time corporate career, which I always had, and I think people really believed executive moms was this big organization that had all these people running in, and it was an, a bit of an unintentional smoke and mirrors. I just wanted it to seem very professionally done, but I had some help along the way, and I'll always be grateful for that help, but a lot of it was single-handed from writing every piece of content myself. So executive mom still exists. It's just a bit more dormant after all those years of running it, and as my own executive careers progressed and as other resources emerged, it was just it just became a little bit unsustainable. But I, I ran it actively for gosh, close to 13, 14 years. And it's still my Twitter handle, it's still a big part of my identity and I think my personal sense of purpose. And I think how this conversation evolves is also something I've been giving a lot of thought to. Yeah, well, now that you have a fancy podcast studio over there, you could uh, have it <laughs> go to the next medium, uh, get maybe. 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 Well, let's talk about beauty, shall we? Because um, while you were juggling this second career, you had your very big first career leading luxury beauty. So tell me a little bit about that role and then what prompted you to, to take on the Taco Bell opportunity in the context of two very different industries. Very different. And I love, frankly, that it seems so unexpected to people and almost illogical because at the end of the day, I think that's what makes people interesting when there isn't just a clear playbook. And as a marketer, I think one of the things that's been really great is to be able to really practice lateral thinking and how do you come in very humble and learn a whole new industry, but then figure about, well, what are the things that actually are the commonalities versus the much more visible differences? So 
uh, I mean, going back to your question from a beauty standpoint, gosh, I guess I really started touching beauty in my early 20s when I first was, I was on the advertising side and worked on the Clairol business. Back then it was actually really, it was prestigious and it was very strategic. So I enjoyed that work very much. As I mentioned, I then ultimately went on, I did a little stint at Revlon, went on to become head of global advertising at what started as Calvin Klein Cosmetics, became Unilever Cosmetics International, and we wound up encompassing multiple luxury licenses, Lagerfeld and Vera Wang. So it was, it was very interesting. That was probably where I got my earliest beginnings in digital. In fact, this is very funny, but I remember it was 1999, and the CEO of the company, I was newly in the job and she turned to me and sort of banged her her hand with a lot of vehemence on the desk and said, Marissa, this internet thing, it seems kind of important. I think we should do something about it. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yeah, even in 1999, everyone kind of knew the internet thing was pretty important, but I was like, okay, you want a strategy for the internet? Do I have a week? And that was probably how I, I got started in digital. Of course, executive moms came along the way and talk about parallel pathing. I was helping to lead the development of the first website in the entire portfolio of Calvin Klein, which was for a men's fragrance we were doing with probably something like a half a million dollar budget. And then I gave myself $1,500 working with like a a freelance IT guy to build my executive mom's website. So (laughs) a study in contrasts and did some other things for the next few years. But then when the Estee Lauder companies had this opportunity, it was interesting because it was a, sort of a fully digital job at the outset. And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm more of a marketer than a, a digital person. But I think what I in- intuited was that it really was about how to come in as a change agent and transform marketing and, and see the future maybe a few steps ahead of where everyone else was seeing it and bring people along on the journey. And in that sense, it was a really, really exciting entrepreneurial or intrapreneurial role in a very large, sophisticated, complicated organization. And you really learn a lot about yourself in a situation like that and also what it takes to lead with empathy to get people over their fears about change. Okay. So then you took this move to Taco Bell. Tell me about, like, did you even think you would go from beauty to to food and and especially uh, QSR? Not in a million years. And sometimes I, I still reflect on which was the more surprising part, the fact that I went from luxury beauty to fast food or that I went from New York to California. And both of them, I think, were extremely surprising to everyone who knew me and knew my family. And as much as I said before, you sort of, these are those life situations where you learn so much about yourself by challenging yourself. But, and I wasn't looking to necessarily disrupt our our lives this way or to do something that felt scary and challenging. But of course, all those truisms are truisms for a reason that you wind up growing so much. And I think we've grown as a family. I know I've grown as a professional and as an individual from it. And I also feel like I got extremely lucky because you don't really know what you're getting yourself into until you're there. And uh, I mean, it was very daunting, of course, to join a business, a brand, and an industry where, you know, my experience was was not there relative to industry colleagues who had just been in this specific industry for years and years. But you know what? I think that's where you have to approach it with the right attitude of, 
I'm here to bring a perspective and married with the institutional knowledge of some of my colleagues who I quickly got to know and and adore and embrace. Like that's where it becomes just an incredibly, or it can become, I think it did in my case, a very powerful combination where you're bringing a different approach. And now I don't feel like I'm, it's been almost four years. Now I'm very much an insider. And that brings certain advantages, but maybe certain disadvantages too, because when you're new and you're just willing to ask every question and look at things with just a different perspective, for me, it was about reading absolutely everything from a consumer insight standpoint. And I realized I had to get my thoughts together. And that was the first big piece of work that I produced from a thought leadership standpoint, you know, maybe not unintentionally around that 90-day mark. And it was my synthesis of everything I've learned about Taco Bell in a nutshell or aka Taco Shell. And that was sort of the first <laughs> slide. And and then turned it into a whole SWOT analysis for the brand and started to lay out a vision. And amazingly enough, and this is where I give the organization credit, there was a sense of agility and willing to embrace it that I, I feel in some of my past corporate lives, I would still be two, three, four years later trying to socialize that presentation and get people bought in. And But I think it came very much from a sense of respecting everything that was already there versus coming in with some sense of like, you know, hubris, I'm scorching the earth, new sheriff in town, like forget all that. It was very much like, how can I understand what's made this brand already very strong, um, but be realistic about where the vulnerabilities are and then where is their opportunity to grow it. And and I think that was how it was received. And it's been a big part, I think, of setting us on a course of putting this brand even more front and center in not only uh, being in culture, but really leading culture, very much with a view of transcending QSR, quick service restaurant industry, even as we very much respect our role in it. Okay. So I have to dig in a little bit deeper on a couple things because I'm so curious about them. You said something earlier. You said you, you like to practice lateral thinking and you talked a lot about understanding commonalities versus differences. And when I think about your role prior where the glamorous advertising and you were talking about really developing your digital chops, that wouldn't necessarily be something I would immediately think of when I would think of the QSR industry as a whole. So how did you take those skills and was it an easy fit? Is it just a different angle? Like, how did you approach that? I think where it started, you're right. Interestingly, I came into an industry that when you think about the maturation curve of digital business, I mean, the brand was already really doing well from a social media voice standpoint and being seen as really progressive that way. But from a digital business standpoint, and it, it's logical when you think about it, this industry was on the sort of slower end of, of the adoption curve. Why? Because think about what e-commerce has solved. It solves speed, convenience, ease, and those are the tent poles of what the quick service restaurant industry has been built on, right? So they're they're conveniently located and they're fast and they're affordable. So it's only now with the advent of mobile ordering and of course delivery really starting to proliferate the landscape that digital business is becoming as big of a thing in this industry as it was in my previous business. So it's kind of fun for me to now get to be overseeing that and playing more of a role in it and figuring out how to do it here where the economics and the model is just completely different than what I was doing 
in beauty. But the parts that were more easily transferable right away just how to think about brand, how to think about competition, how to think about consumer insights, how to get inspired, which is so much a part of this job. And a phrase I've taken to saying to my team and I'm sure other people could relate to it is we need to look to our own category for information, but we need to look outside of our category for inspiration. And that's what I mean a little bit by lateral thinking is we need to know what the score is in terms of what the obvious competitors are doing. But I don't think that's just because someone in our industry is doing something doesn't mean we should just react. I think, you know, to be a creatively driven brand, which Taco Bell really is, and the Perhaps the thing I adore most about being a part of Taco Bell is it it does, I think, create both permission and, and sort of a mandate that we derive our inspiration from all sorts of other places. Yeah, I love that saying. So look within the industry for information, look outside the industry for inspiration. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Great. Okay. That's all. <laughs> well done. Thank you. I love that. And I think that also applies to the role of agencies and how yes. one can leverage them. Agency partnerships are a big part on a brand this size of how we get everything done. So I'm a big believer in really strong agency partnerships. And when you get it right, I think they should feel and you have to treat them like truly an extension of your team. Because if they're just going to be treated like a vendor and you're not really taking the time to inform them and, and, and share as partners, what's really happening with the business? What am I worried about? Why is this feeling good? Why is this not feeling good? If you don't have that kind of dialogue, then um, I just don't see how you could possibly enable them to be the kind of big creative problem solvers that you really need them to be. And one of the things that I do think has been a step change in how we work here at Taco Bell is in the beginning, you know, we had a PR agency, we had a media agency, a couple of media agencies, we had, of course, the creative agency. And it was pretty competitive in terms of how they worked. And I feel like we have just at a place where it's completely understood and expected and just the norm that our different agencies work as well together as they work individually with us, which is essential if we're going to create really integrated campaigns and show up that way for the consumer. Right. So we, we spent a lot of time talking about that and a lot of other topics. And with you, I feel like we could cover the whole gamut. And I, I remember when we chatted earlier, you were very, very adamant about saying to me, you know what, Nadine, it's the most important part of this whole role is being authentic in your leadership style. And can you tell me what you mean by that? Well, you know, it's very interesting. I think that as individuals, and I would perhaps suggest with a little bit of my executive mom's hat on that perhaps we as women still rising up in business, you know, there is a certain aspect of trying to suss out how you're playing a part. And I believe that to a certain extent, there is an appropriateness to making sure we calibrate how we comport ourselves in business. It's a little different than how you show up with your family or your friends or so forth. But at the end of the day, and I think one of the, I'll call it both a privilege and a responsibility of, of moving up the corporate ladder is I actually think then people are looking to you for signals about how to be and how to behave. And and people in general, and it's no different at work, respond to authenticity. Like we want to feel trust that we know who's showing up and, and whether I can count on that person. And I, I especially think for 
younger executives. And now I will include very much the men in this as well as the women who are contemplating, like, how is this going to work when I have a family? And and that, you know, showing up as this whole person that's imperfect and and also showing up talking about my kids. And to me, that authenticity of being a real human being and being real with emotions and, and real in terms of how I experience success and defeat. I wish I had had more examples of that myself when I was rising up. I think it would have given me a lot more of a sense of both security and confidence. So without it really being so much of a conscious decision every day, I think just as I've gotten older and further along, I've I've actually gotten more comfortable in, in being myself and allowing hopefully the best of that, although of course we all have bad days and Sometimes even admitting that and saying I, I wasn't I wasn't the best in this meeting or this conversation we had, I think that just goes a long way. And it's a it's a journey for all of us, right? I mean, no one I don't think anyone is perfect at this, but just thinking of it as as a value system to be that person that people feel like they can really talk to and 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 there's a sincerity in their interaction, I think makes a whole difference in creating a sense of safety. And I'd argue that that feeling of safety is how you get creativity. And when you said earlier that you wish you had had more role models like that, giving you even more confidence, I can't imagine what you would have done if you had any more confidence. You already had two full-time careers. So how in the heck do you keep your energy up? Uh, Well, I just have to tell you, I never thought of myself as being super confident. So I guess that's a little bit of how you you show up or how people perceive you versus how your stomach might be roiling on the inside. It's so interesting. Even admitting that, I think, is helpful because it would have been nice for me to know that about other people I saw that I was like, gosh, I wish I was as confident as that person. So so thank you for saying that. And just to be honest about it, I don't know that I always saw myself that way. And then to answer your other question, I, I mean, I think the energy comes from when I'm very energized by great people having fun together and bringing great work together. It's really as hard and as simple as that for me. So and unfortunately, that means I'm also very susceptible to when things don't feel right in the workplace, um, when the energy isn't good. I'm probably a little too susceptible to that as well. But boy, and I have this so much with my own marketing team at Taco Bell, who are just a bunch of unbelievably terrific leaders who I feel such a rapport with them and a trust that, you know, I, I think it's a sign of, of a good thing that they feel like they can poke fun at me because that's, you know, that's where it means there's there's a sense of comfort in a relationship. And and that's how you want to be with your closest friends and your family. And, and we all spend a lot of time at work. So I think it's pretty dreamy when those kinds of relationships extend into the workplace. And it means that you should and can be able to toggle from really hard conversations about the work to silly conversations and warm conversations about people's lives and their families. And it all should have a place to mix and cohabitate together. It does sound like you're having a great time (laughs) with your team. So it seems like you made a really good move there. And unfortunately, we're almost out of time. So um, before I ask you my last question, is there anything at all that you want to share with folks that are either aspiring to be in the CMO role or juggling family and work or even peer-to-peer? 
I guess if there's anything instructive about the career path that I've had, which hasn't been perfectly linear or totally traditional, whatever even a traditional career path means anymore, is that as much as I've been candid about feeling not always brave, and yet I've done some things that people see that way. And now when I pull back the aperture and look at that, I realize that if you're smart and can connect the dots and have a curiosity and can bring certain core skills to the table, that there's actually something incredibly stimulating and potentially very effective on both sides of the table to take some turns in your career that don't feel like you're just playing the same playbook as it's been laid out by a particular career or industry. And it's easier said than done. You know, it doesn't pertain to all situations, but I'm really glad that I've done some things that only now pulling back makes sense, but at the time they didn't always. And some of the risks I took were risky for a reason and they didn't pay out exactly the way I wanted. But in the end, like I said, now I see it as all very much part of how I got to where I am today. Yeah, very interesting. And so uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to take yet another dramatic twist with our last question here. (laughs) Okay. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah, uh uh-oh. So if money and talent were no object, you can remove those barriers entirely. Money and talent. Wow. Money and talent. What would you be doing right now? Wow. It's usually, you know, you take one of those out, but you take both of those out. The possibilities are just so unlimited. Um, (laughs) You know, it would probably span the gamut from being a teacher uh, to being a shoe designer. But, you know, I'm going to stand with my story that the illogical is sometimes what makes it interesting. So there you go. Teacher or shoe designer? I love it. Normally I would say, wow, I wasn't expecting that, but I was expecting something dramatic to come from you because I knew I was just waiting for it. So, um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to share all your helpful tips with us today and just hats off on the tremendous confidence you had to really (laughs) develop and execute and manage two exciting careers uh, side by side and doing so much to help other executive moms in the process. So thanks for being here. That means a lot to me. And it's really a pleasure to get to talk to you. Yes. Oh, thank you so much.